0: Welcome to Episode 1, Solved, the D.B. Cooper Hijacking. This podcast is brought to you by Principia Media, whose groundbreaking four-part documentary, D.B. Cooper, The Real Story, is available on iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, Google Play, and Vimeo. For more information, go to therealdbcooper.com. I'm your host, Dave Parsons. On a personal note, back when the D.B. Cooper hijacking occurred in November 1971, I was a student at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. It was a time of protest and national division, much like today. Back then, we were involved in a brutal, prolonged war in Vietnam. There was violence and protest on campuses across our country. Hijackings, or skyjackings as the media called them, were almost an everyday occurrence. Initially, the D.B. Cooper hijacking was not a big story, up until later on, when it was discovered that the hijacker had exited the airplane via a parachute with a ransom of $200,000. Since then, the case has grown to legendary proportions. For those unaware of the D.B. Cooper hijacking, it was a fairly simple crime. Crazy, but simple. On November 24, 1971, on the day before Thanksgiving, a man calling himself Dan Cooper, a name the media reported as D.B. Cooper, boarded Northwest Flight 305 in Portland, bound for Seattle. He was wearing a dark suit and a black tie, and was described as looking like a businessman. While taking off, he handed the flight attendant a note. Thinking it was personal, she put it in her pocket. After he motioned to her, she opened the note which said, "'Miss, I have a bomb, sit next to me,' which she did. He then opened his briefcase, revealing what looked like a bomb. He demanded $200,000 in $20 bills and four parachutes. Upon landing, the money and parachutes were exchanged for the passengers and two of the three flight attendants. Upon takeoff, the remaining flight attendant was told to go to the cockpit. He then opened the aft door of the airliner and jumped, never to be heard from again. In this podcast, you will hear evidence that proves Walter R. Recca was the hijacker, D.B. Cooper. This 48-year-old unsolved case has been subject to many theories, until now. Now, New evidence directly connects Walter R. Recca to the D.B. Cooper hijacking. The evidence will show that Walter Rekka had the motive, the specialized skills, and the plan to carry out the hijacking. Of paramount importance is that Rekka confessed to the crime to family members, his best friend, and provided details about the crime that only the hijacker would know. Further, investigators located a witness who verified the hijacker's account of Walter's on-the-ground activities immediately after the parachute landing. Add this to the fact that Walter R. Recca matched the FBI profile, had a criminal history, and would often boast about committing a robbery using a parachute. These are just a few of the details about the hijacking provided by Walter Recca and to those he spoke with about the hijacking. However, the truth is in the details you will hear from walter Recca's niece who was told about the motive heard about the details of the crime and was a witness to a written confession you will also hear from carl Loren, walter Recca's best friend who spoke with Recca about the crime over a 15-year period and, with Walter's permission, audiotaped several of their conversations, during which Walter revealed intimate and personal recollections about the plan and his involvement in the hijacking. In addition, you will hear from Jeff Osadich, the man who spoke with Walter Rekka minutes after the hijacking, and recalls the details of that encounter. Walter Recka was a complicated man with a checkered past. All the details about his life, prior to, during, and after the hijacking, are being presented, blemishes and all. In order to understand how a person would become so desperate that he was willing to risk his life to pull off the hijacking, first it is important to know who Walter was and the circumstances that led to him pulling the only unsolved hijacking in American aviation history. Walter's Life Prior to the Hijacking Walter was born on September 20, 1933, into a Polish-Russian family living in Detroit. Growing up, English was rarely spoken in their home. When Walter was six, his father, also named Walter, was employed doing electrical work while studying for a medical degree. But his life suddenly changed when his father was electrocuted, which left his family in peril. For a time, he and his sister were left to fend for themselves when their mother abandoned them. Walter Recca's best friend, Carl Loren, from his home in Florida, describes Walter's life growing up.
1: This is how Walter grew up. On the streets of Detroit, he had a little sister. Times were really hard for him. His dad had been electrocuted.
0: Walter's niece, Lisa Story, who lives in Las Vegas, adds...
2: And their mother was very, very young. I think she was maybe 16 when she had Walt. And so when her husband, who was going to school to be a doctor, passed away, she worked. And she also was young, and maybe not the most responsible parent, and would leave them alone for days on end. And I remember they talked about how in the refrigerator there would be a tomato or two and some salt.
0: Carl
1: Loren adds. He would try to steal food off of food carts, you know, vendors had and so forth. He eventually ended up in reform school at 10 years old. At age
0: 17, Walt enlisted in the Army and became a paratrooper and after his service was honorably discharged and went to barber school under the GI Bill. Walter also joined the Army National Guard. According to the FBI and others involved in the D.B. Cooper investigation, the hijacker was believed to be an experienced skydiver. Walt was not only an experienced skydiver, he was also pararescue in the military, which requires elite skydiving skills. Mark Metzler is an active skydiver with over 50 years of parachuting experience. He holds a U.S. Parachute Association Class D Expert Parachutist License, which required both night and water jumps. Mark also has extensive experience jumping military surplus parachute gear similar to the type D.B. Cooper used. He is also a criminal defense attorney and has studied the D.B. Cooper
3: case. I have friends who were, they call them PJs, or the pararescue jumpers. It is probably the most elite parachute uh, force in, in the U.S. military or in the world. They, their training is, is just uh, incredibly intense. It's very competitive. I think some years they had 600 candidates and 40 made it. And these were 600 highly qualified candidates, you know, physically fit, and uh, intelligent, and so forth. And so, it's a really tight screen that you have to go through to become a pararescue jumper. And then you qualify for all sorts of things: night jumps, water jumps, mountain jumps, rescues, recovery of downed pilots, special operations, firearms, thermal imaging equipment. I mean, they're just they're extraordinarily well-trained people. It would give somebody a real advantage to have had that training if if they turned out to be D.B. Cooper, they could definitely, they could get to the ground alive, they could hide, they could get out of the area without being detected.
0: Walt, like many ex-paratroopers, was wanting adventure after serving in the military. And after his discharge, discovered a group of former paratroopers who had started skydiving at a small airfield in Saginaw, Michigan. That is how Walter met Carl Loren, who was one of the founders of the Michigan Parachute Team which was one of the early skydiving groups that has since been given credit for starting the sport of sport parachuting. Here, from a taped phone conversation with Carl Loren from 2008, Carl and Walter discussed their shared experiences in the early 1950s when they were each Army paratroopers. Carl Loren speaks first. Yeah, just like making your first jump, I mean, you could say to me,
4: describe something on your first jump, your your first jump or your second jump or your third pair. you know, when you were at Fort Bragg. And the only thing I could tell you is I, is I got onto a C-119 along with uh, about 40 other saps that were scared out of their mind. And uh, we, we sat there and, and the thing and then the guys said, stand up and hook up, you know, but I can't remember anybody's face or any, uh, uh, any um, uh, you know, describe anything other than just, it was
0: an airplane and we were all, all on it, you know. Walter Recca from his home in Oscoda, Michigan, adds,
4: I don't, I don't remember even getting to the door, because my face was in the other man's backpack right in front of me, and all I knew that happened was daylight
0: then, and somebody said go. You know, yeah, at me. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was also during this time that Carl became suspicious of Walter's motives.
1: Walter had always talked to us uh, about using a parachute to pull a robbery.
0: Though Walt was a good skydiver, he was a horrible barber and soon left that profession. Mickey Stahl is the son of one of Walter's early childhood friends, Willard Stahl, who knew Walt back in the days when Walt was a barber.
1: There was a beauty shop next door. Some lady had parked her car in Walt's driveway, and he was getting ready to go to work, and he was blocked in. He goes into the beauty shop, and he tells the lady, can you please move your car? She says, I'll move it when I get done. Well, he went back to his house, got his machine gun out, went out there and shot her car all to pieces. His barber business came to a screeching halt when he gave a guy a haircut. You know, he said the guy, it was a good haircut. He said the guy jumped up, started raising the devil, and started yelling at him, and wanted to turn around and beat him up.
0: A few years later, Walt was hired by the Teamsters Union as an enforcer at a large local bakery. In those days, when unions were strong, a person working for the union worked their way up through the organization by proving themselves. And Walter had the wherewithal to be a
1: good enforcer. Carl Loren. After his barber business closed, Walter had to find a new job. Walter went down to the Teamsters and said, you've got to give me a job. He started his career driving a cookie truck. Soon he got off the cookie truck and he got into the enforcement part of the Teamsters, but that didn't stop him from getting into trouble.
0: On June 22, 1965, Walter made a big mistake that would take his life into a new direction. While drinking with a friend one night, they got an idea to rob a restaurant, a big boy, on 8 Mile Road in Detroit. Unfortunately for Walter, the police were nearby and arrested Walt who was brandishing a submachine gun, and his friend who was driving the getaway car. Lisa's story remembers her uncle telling her about the Big Boy restaurant robbery.
2: So they went and parked in front of the Big Boy, his friend chickened out. And so he got irritated and said, I'll go do it. So he went inside the Big Boy, and you know, with an empty Tommy gun, according to him. And then in his mind, he left $100 bills on all the tables of the people who stayed and ate and watched this like it was a movie and walked out and it just so happened that two police officers were coming to have dinner and heard on the radio that a man matching my uncle's description was robbing the big boy. So even though he tried to get rid of the gun and the money behind the bushes, they still caught him.
0: It was Walter's encounter with the restaurant manager later that night while being taken to jail that would be revealing to Carl years later when he was investigating Walt's possible involvement in the D.B. Cooper case. On the night of the big boy robbery, when Walt had the money from the restaurant's cash drawer, he did something remarkable. He went from table to table, handing out money to patrons while apologizing for disrupting their meal. He even gave the manager an extra $50 for her trouble. That got the manager to stop by the jail later on, where she told Walt she wished they'd met under other circumstances. Here in this audio recording from 2008 with Carl Lauren. Walter explains his interactions with the restaurant manager.
4: You in jail? Yeah. Yeah. Did, did she say anything then? Letting a bunch of money right there. She said, "I wish I could have met you under different circumstances."
0: Yeah. Mickey Stahl and Carl Loren explain
1: what happened next. After the big boy, he went. He went out west. He used to get in trouble, then he used to run to another state. Walder worked for the Teamsters, but he lost his position after the big boy robbery. Walter decided to meet up with his drinking buddy, Don Brennan, who lived out west.
4: What happened there is I got out on the waiting for a trial. So uh, I just took off, I took California for uh, Don
1: Brennan's place. Jail was the only thing that really scared Walter. He wasn't afraid of guns or anything else, but he did not want to go to jail.
0: Fellow skydiver, Jim McCusker, who was a member of the Michigan Parachute Team in the 1950s with Walter, remembers.
1: He was interesting in a
0: way that he was quiet. But as I learned later in life, those are the people that you learn to watch out the most for. And Walter was that type of guy. He'd be nice as pie one day and you know, he could clean shop the next
1: day. Mickey Stahl. You know, Walt was always a, like a sneaky person. Carl Loren. He was the kind of guy that you'd really like to be sitting around talking with. When he wasn't robbing and sticking up somewhere and lighting somebody's house on fire, he was a decent
0: guy. (laughs) In the D.B. Cooper hijacking, according to flight attendant Tina Mucklow, Walt offered her a stack of bills for her trouble prior to jumping from the airplane. Carl Loren and Walter Recca from their 2008 audio tape recording.
4: You've been nice to me? Yeah, kindness. Huh? Well, polite and kindness. Uh, okay, and, and she wouldn't take it? You told her the insurance would cover it? Yeah. Uh. The one on Aunt Margo took it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they took it back from her, too, though, you know? No.
0: When Carl heard about what the flight attendant encountered, it reminded him of what Walter did after robbing the restaurant. It was further evidence that Walt was indeed the hijacker. Because the robbery of the big boy was a felony, Walter was fired by the Teamsters. They could not afford to have one of their enforcers convicted of a crime, so their only choice was to fire Walt. And because a felony conviction would come with a jail sentence, Walt jumped bail and fled the state. After a series of odd jobs around the country, Walt found more permanent work in Washington state as an iron worker on the Grand Coulee Dam project during the building of the third power unit. That was in 1971, the year of the hijacking. In the next episode, the reason Walt chose to hijack the airplane and become D.B. Cooper become apparent, as is explained by his niece, Lisa's Story.
2: He was determined uh, at that point not to be poor. And so when I asked him why he did it, he said, better off dead than poor. And I think the point where he was in his life was he was so tired of being poor and of seeing his children being poor and his wife nagging about we got to pay rent, we got to buy food. I have no clothes. You know, how are we going to live? I want a house that I, I think for him he just didn't care if he lived or died. And so when you look at something like the D.B. Cooper jump, it almost takes somebody who didn't care if they lived or died.
0: End of episode one. Solved the D.B. Cooper hijack. For more information, go to our Facebook page, The Real D.B. Cooper, and like our page. On that page, you will find out more about the story of Walter Recca, the man who became DB Cooper